So when you enter a person's home, you're going to learn much about the person or the, the persons who dwell there. If you visit the gardener home, as you enter the doorway, you see one sign saying, welcome, and another saying, God is good all the time. And you wipe your feet on a mat with more words, declaring, this is our happy place. There are lots of words on the walls at the gardener home. In the kitchen, one sign communicates language found in Matthew 18. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. While another says, all I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. <laughs> Entering this home, you learn these people believe in the power of words. And in particular, words rooted in the power of the Lord. Of course, they also believe they need a little bit of coffee. Or maybe a lot of coffee. Beyond signs with words, you'd see a table that seats far more individuals than the, the, the number of people who live there. There are numerous couches and sitting areas. It would seem this family likes to host guests, perhaps beloved Christian family from a gospel community. You would observe things like a chore chart, indicating there is a, at least one child, maybe more, who needs some direction with responsibility. You'd find piles of paper that need to be sorted, signs of at least one disorganized resident, that's me, Lights in the home are often burnt out or mismatched, and the furniture is not the latest and greatest. People who live in this home have flaws. They are far from perfect, and in fact can be kind of messy. Taking a tour of the gardener home, you would learn much about the people who dwell there. What would a tour of your home or your dedicated living space reveal about you? Perhaps you see a dog, or two dogs, or maybe more, declaring a love for man's best friend. Perhaps there are posters of Taylor Swift, or Travis Kelsey, or other celebrity-type figures. Perhaps you, too, have signs pointing to your love and worship of Jesus, or how you like coffee. Perhaps there are treats that proclaim your love for chocolate, or there are toys all over the place that demonstrate you have a kid or two. It would be an interesting thing to consider. What would a tour of your home reveal about you? This morning we're in a portion of the book of Exodus where we are learning about the home of the Lord, what is sometimes referred to as the tent of meeting. This is the, the place where God dwells among his people. I, I think Pastor Chris mentioned last week, God is moving into the neighborhood, if you will. He is entering a new period in how he is present with his people. You, you may have heard that a key way to summarize the book of Exodus is, this, is the book where God makes himself known. This morning as we look at, this passages, as these, this morning as we look at these passages, we get to do a bit of a tour of his home, getting to know him through the architectural blueprints he provides for the items to be found where he dwells. So the title of the sermon this morning is Tour of the Tent. In the passages read earlier, we're encountering how God sets in motion the construction of specific items to be placed in his home. Last week we looked at the ark. This week we'll explore a number of other items. And as we explore those items, it's going to provide us an opportunity to consider the significance of what is found in the house where God dwells. And think about what it reveals about his character. So the big idea will be 
the home of God points his people to his greatness and his goodness. The passages we're looking at this morning are, are found in Exodus chapter 25, chapter 27, and chapter 30. If you want to follow along in your Bibles or Bible app, open them up to that section. But because we're bouncing around, the words to the passages will be displayed on the, on the screen. So people of First City Church, come with me. We're going to go on a tour using the architectural blueprints to look at the items in the house of the Lord. We're going to put them on the screen, and we're going to consider what do these things reveal about the character of the Lord. So as we enter the house, the first thing we encounter is something called the altar of sacrifice. Here's how the blueprints, blueprints begin to describe how it is to be constructed. You are to construct the altar of acacia wood. The altar must be square, seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide, must be four and a half feet high, makes horns for its four corners, the horns are to be of one piece, overlay it with bronze, make its pots for removing ashes and its shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans, make all its utensils of bronze, construct a grate for it of bronze mesh, and make four bronze rings on the mesh at its four corners. So you can probably figure out things were going to be burned here. Now, the particulars of how things would be burned, or for that matter, how each of the items in God's home would be used, that is beyond the scope of this sermon. We would cover those if we were preaching on the book of Leviticus. We're not. For the purposes of this sermon, we need to know at this altar, an animal would periodically be sacrificed for the sins of God's people. This altar is therefore communicating something about how God responds to sin. We may like to think the appropriate response to sin, to our flaws and our failures, to our rejecting his rule and his reign is for God to say, hey, it's no big deal. No worries. That's all right. The altar of sacrifice proclaims something much different. God's response to sin is not no big deal. Rejection of the law, worshiping other gods, Worship of idols, it is a big deal, such a big deal, in fact, it requires a life to be sacrificed. This sacrifice was not a request, it was a requirement of the law. To experience the Lord's presence, a sacrifice for sin must be made. So this communicates the person who dwells in this home, he is holy, he is righteous, he is without sin. So this altar of sacrifice in the home of God, it points his people to consider his greatness. Now let's continue our tour. And the next significant item we see is the basin for washing. Here's how the explanation for how it was to be built begins. Make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basin. You might think that people wash their hands and feet here because maybe they were physically dirty with ash encountered in the altar of sacrifice. Not really. Washing was a, a physical practice that pointed to a spiritual reality. The washing of hands and feet, it was representative of how bodies were stained with sin. To approach the Lord, people cleaned the parts of their bodies that most interacted with the world, that participated in sin, or were stained by the sins of others. Now, why is the basin necessary in addition to the sacrifice? 
Well, the water testified to this reality that, that beyond a life being sacrificed, people needed to be cleansed by something external to them. They, they needed water to wash over them to be purified. Uh, I think some recognize to address sin, sin must be acknowledged. A sort of sacrifice mu must be made. Saying, I'm sorry, is a good thing. Authors and speakers like Renee Brown, if you're familiar with her, they have made vulnerability and acknowledgement of weakness popular. But acknowledging I've done something wrong is not all that is necessary to be cleansed from sin. This basin testifies to the need to surrender to something outside of us, to the need to be washed. This scene communicates a need for God's people to experience cleansing. Again, we may think the appropriate response to sin is no big deal, no worries, that's all right. This basin communicates something much different. It communicates the one who dwells in this home. He is holy, he is righteous, he is without sin. So again, this basin for wa washing in the home of God, it too points to his greatness. Now you may be wondering, how do this altar of sacrifice and how do this washing basin point to God's goodness? There, there are so many things to consider here, especially if we talk about how these things point to Christ. A sacrifice, being washed clean. We'll get there eventually, but for now, let's start with this. You, you may have noticed how both the altar of sacrifice and the basin for washing were to be constructed of bronze. This contrasts items in the home we will encounter later that, that are more special or more set apart. Like the ark, these items will be constructed of gold. And the altar and the basin being constructed of bronze. In them being in the front of the tent of meeting, they serve as a sort of place to transition from the outside into more inner aspects of the home. Or we might say more set-apart aspects of the home. Your home may have this type of transitional space too. Maybe you have a porch where people take off their coats and shoes. In our home, before stepping onto the carpet, there is a, a tiled area. The blueprints would have specified this area to be six and a half feet long by 98 inches wide. I know I took the measurements myself. If you're a Bible nerd like me, those measurements would have read in the ESV four cubits by five and a half cubits. Transitional space, it communicates you are entering from an outside world where you get dirty. And you're entering into space that is more set apart. This space is different than walking on the dirty ground or the dirty concrete. Transitional spaces in your home reckon with the dirt on your feet. Transitional spaces in God's home reckon with the dirt on your heart. Now for a question. Are transitional spaces in and of themselves, that address how someone is dirty, are they, are they offensive? Like if you were to walk into my home, onto the tile, would you say, I can't believe this tile is here. I can't believe how you're addressing how my feet are dirty. I don't think you'd respond that way. But for some reason, we think God should accept me as I am. Now, some dirt in my living room or dining room is one thing. The significance of sin 
in the presence of a holy and righteous God is quite another. So let's raise the stakes for how we're thinking about a transitional space. Before a surgeon enters the space of an operating room, he or she participates in a lengthy process to be free from infection. The surgeon dons a gown, a cap over the head, bootsy over shoes, a mask to capture particles breathed out of the nose and mouth, and no surgeon would ever dare enter the sacred space of an operating room without washing her or his hands. Because dirty hands in the operating room can very much be a life or death issue for the one being operated on. Likewise, sin-stained hands and dirty and defiled hearts in the presence of a holy God, because sin is such a big deal, it is a life and death issue too. It leads to the death of a sinner. No surgeon, no patient is grumbling about the existence of a transitional space because a lack of purity is a big deal and must be dealt with in the operating room. The transition space in the home of the Lord communicates sin is a big deal and it must be dealt with too. And here's the thing. Areas of transition do not communicate that people who are dirty cannot be present in sacred spaces. In fact, it does just the opposite. It communicates people entering sacred spaces. They encounter the dirt of the outside world. They put their hands and their feet in the dirt of the outside world. They are stained and they need to be cleaned. This transitional space, it is a way to welcome them. In our tour of the tent, this transitional space communicates to dwell with God. You must admit you are dirty. This is not a way to exclude you. It is a way to welcome you in. And entering this transitional space where the altar and the wash basin are located, it is not that the Israelite that has sinned is not welcome, but there is something sacred or set apart about fellowshipping with a person who dwells there who is holy that must be addressed. Sacrifice for sin must be made. What makes them dirty must be washed away. God provides a way for people who are dirty to dwell and fellowship with him. So the altar and the basin in the home of God, they not only communicate his greatness, but that way to dwell with him has been provided. It's in the blueprints. It communicates the goodness of his home too. So as we move on from this transitional space, we enter a more set-apart space. It's actually referred to as the holy place. You might think of how you move from the porch or that, that area, the entry tile, to, to spaces like your dining room or living room. Now, in the tent of meeting, this, this space is separated by a curtain because the tent didn't have walls. These are places where one would experience blessings associated with hospitality and connection and presence. In that vein, you might expect to find a table, and you'd be right. So the next item on our tour is the table of the presence. Here's how God instructs his people to build this table. You are to construct a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding all around it. Uh, items of the, the dwelling that are more special, as I mentioned, are made of gold. This indicates how special the one is who resides here, his royalty. His set-apartness. 
Just like the ark, this table had poles that would be used to carry it as a way of preserving its sacredness. The form of this table communicates the greatness of the one who dwells here. But the table also communicates his goodness. You see, if you, if you walk into my house and you look at, at the table where my family and I fellowship with one another and fellowship with others, that table is typically empty. The scene of the table sitting in the house of the Lord is different. You are also to make its plates and cups as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. This was never an empty table. Isn't it interesting that what God has built into the blueprints is not the provision of an empty table, but a table always filled with bread. This table communicates the Lord is always providing nourishment and care and life and vitality for his people. He is a good host. When we dwell with him, there is never an empty table. God always provides the food needed by his people for everyday life. The table of the presence in the home of God points to his greatness and his goodness. So let's move on from the table to another item in the holy place, the lampstand. You are to make a lampstand out of pure gold, hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece. Its base and shaft, its ornamental cups and its buds and petals, six branches are to extend from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on one branch and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Now this lampstand reflecting on its form and function, I think it could be such a fun sermon in and of itself. The, the intricate details of how it is constructed, of how it is to function, of what it all points to, Christ being the light of the world, a new creation where it is never dark. I could go on and on. But this sermon isn't about the lampstand. So let's, let's make this observation. This lampstand points to God's greatness in creation. He is the one who creates light. And the shape of this lampstand is a tree with buds. The, the, the form clearly points back to God's work creating the Garden of Eden. And many believe it specifically points to the tree of life. So the lampstand in the home of God points to his greatness. What about his goodness? Well, lights on in your home, they symbolize to those outside it that someone dwells there and that someone is active in the home. It, it, light on the home means there is life that is vibrant and awake and alert. Now, at some point during the night, most people who dwell in a house go to bed and the lights go out. The Lord's house is different. Listen to how the Lord wants his, the light in his house to function. You are to command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light in order to keep the lamp burning regularly. The light in this lamp was to never burn out at night. Why? A little secret, God could see in the dark. The light burning regularly throughout the night 
it was not for his benefit. The way it functioned to remain burning regularly, having seven distinct lamps, to only use pure oil from crushed olives, this would have made the tent of the Lord the brightest lit house in the neighborhood. Meaning, God was present. God was home. God was not sleeping. God was not off on some journey. Can you imagine the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness, how comforting this would have been. I mean, even today, darkness at night, it can be so disorienting. What we fear, our thoughts run wild. We think we are alone. Maybe we think we are abandoned. For the Israelite, nighttime could be a scary time as you wander in the wilderness, as you hear the sounds of wild beasts as you consider the, the potential enemies that might be preparing to attack. The home of the brightest light is the dwelling place of the Lord. God gave his people a flame from this lamp to provide comfort. He wants them to be comforted. Even in the darkness, he was working. This lampstand in the home of God, its form and function, it points his people to his greatness and his goodness. Now, sadly, our tour is almost over. The last item we're going to consider is called the altar of incense. You are to make an altar for the burning of incense. Make it of acacia wood. You are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. So this altar is also made of gold, and it is to be placed right in front of a second curtain, the second curtain separates the holy place that we've entered into from the most set-apart aspect of the home. This is the place that's occupied by the ark, a place that's actually referred to as the most holy place. Only the chief priest was allowed to enter the most holy place and only one time a year. You, know, you might think this place kind of functions like your bedroom. This is really personal space. Just like you rarely take guests to check out your bedroom, rarely would anyone ever enter this space. So this altar of incense, in being constructed of gold, in being placed right in front of the curtain before the most holy place where the ark dwelled, it pointed, it was right in front, it pointed to God's greatness, and it pointed to his goodness. The coals provided, they were provided by the altar of sacrifice, they were to be placed here providing this picture of connection between God's people on the outside and God's dwelling place on the inside. As the smoke ascended, it symbolized as God's people prayed to him. As they lived under his rule and reign, he was listening. The smoke could be expected to reach into the most holy place. It symbolized a holy God was accessible to his people. God could hear his people. God could smell the prayers and presence of his people on days other than the one day when someone would enter the most holy place. So this altar of incense in the home of God, it pointed his people to his greatness and his goodness. So our tour is now complete. For the Israelite familiar with the, the blueprints of how God's home was to be constructed, it revealed how the one who dwelled there 
He was great and he was good. But for you and I, the items in the home take on a much different meaning. Each of these items points to a God who came down to do more than dwell with his people in the neighborhood. Because all of these items point to a God who came down to dwell in bodily form, in a bodily home. It points to his work, the work of Jesus Christ and his ministry, because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus is the one who ultimately cleanses his people from all unrighteousness. Jesus is the one who is the true bread of life, always providing nourishment to his followers. Jesus is the ultimate light of the world, a light that cannot and has not ever been overcome by darkness, even the darkness of death. Jesus is the sweet aroma of a sacrifice that has been made that ascends to the heavens. God dwelling in bodily form, it completely changed how you and I experience God's presence, God's dwelling place. As we've been reading the text, you may be aware or you may have noticed the everyday person could not enter the tent of meeting, only priests. A, a priest, which I think we'll talk more of in future weeks, pointed the need for God's people to have someone set apart to bridge the gap between God and man. The, the priests were set apart for duties in the tent of meeting. Only they could enter God's presence. Everyday people had to remain outside the tent. God dwelling in bodily form, it completely changed all that. Here's the author of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Because God came to dwell with us in bodily form, we are no longer on the outside. Because God is no longer approached through an altar of sacrifice or a basin of water. Because what those items represented, it is no longer required. This text in Hebrews is saying Christ is the ultimate priest. We no longer need a priest to experience the presence of God because he has cleansed us. He has made us clean. Jesus is the one who journeyed through the tent, who brought the greatness and goodness of God to dwell with his people outside the tent. The ultimate home of God. Jesus Christ, the place where God came to dwell in bodily form, that person invites us to experience God's greatness and goodness in entirely different ways. Christ takes dirty and defiled sinners as they are, and he makes them clean. He dwells with them. Yes, we must admit we are dirty, but we no longer need a priest to make sacrifices for us, to approach the intimate places where God dwells, because Christ was the priest who abolished the need for such things. As Christ, God ushered a new period for how he dwells with his people. He no longer dwells in the neighborhood. Every day people don't dwell on the outside because God now dwells in the hearts of his children. Now if you're with us this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want to I speak to you for a moment 
You remain on the outside of where God, God dwells. Why? Well, perhaps it's helpful to think about how some hesitate when encountering transitional spaces of a dwelling place. Maybe they come onto the porch, but that's where they stay. They don't, they don't want to remove their shoes that are dirty. This is like the person who is unwilling to acknowledge struggles with sin in their life. Or maybe this person is too busy. You, you know the one, the one you're like, hey, come on in, come on in. But they have way too much to do to come in to chat for a few minutes. Some are too busy to consider the hospitality of this great host. Or, or maybe, even though there is an invitation for those who are dirty to come in fellowship, this person thinks of themselves as too dirty. You know, the one who comes and they're like, man, I'm, I'm way too dirty to come into your house. They have too much shame, too much sin. They've been defiled in some dark ways. And so they are unwilling to receive the hospitality of this host. You who are dirty, you who are defiled, you who are too busy, God welcomes you in to dwell with you. Will you accept that invitation? For brothers and sisters in Christ, too often we struggle what it means to fellowship with this great and good host. Maybe you are this guest who has been invited to feast in the presence of this king, but you're too preoccupied to enjoy it. You're looking at your phone. You're caught up in earthly things. Or maybe you keep thinking, I, I, I shouldn't be here. I'm, I'm too dirty. You're comparing yourself to the other guests, and you feel far too unworthy to be in the room. In entertaining such thoughts, you don't delight in fellowshipping with this host. So maybe you try to perform. You know, you're like the guest who comes over. Uh, they believe to, to be present. They, they need to bring a bottle of wine and the appetizer and the dessert and another main dish. Or perhaps you're the guest who does not appreciate how awesome this fellowship is. Because you dismiss and deny how dirty you can be. You, you think you should be there, but man, you get annoyed at all the other guests who are in the room. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have accepted the invitation. But will you delight at fellowshipping in the presence of a holy host? A host, a host you have no business feasting with, but yet he invites you in. Will you enjoy that party? Please enjoy that party. In Christ, we are no longer on the outside of God's dwelling place. God makes you his dwelling place. His spirit resides in you, and he dwells with us in his church. The tour of the tent, the place where God dwells among his people, it points, his, it points us to his greatness and his goodness. And that greatness and goodness has come to dwell in us and through us and with us. May we learn more of what it means of what it means to walk in this new way of living, that we would reflect his greatness and his goodness.